This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to Innovation in Compliance. In this podcast series, I will bring you interviews with some of the leading experts who are changing the way practitioners approach compliance. Although the name compliance is in the title, it's really about innovation. And I wanted to drive the conversation about innovation in compliance into the 2030s and beyond with a focus on innovations for the compliance practitioner and the compliance professional. You want to learn how to bring your business into an innovative state and more innovative business solutions for compliance problems, issues, and concerns. This is the podcast for you. Innovation and Compliance is a production of Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Igor Volovich from Kulos joins me to talk about the need for fact-based, data-driven compliance and not anecdotal compliance where you cannot pin down the information to the actual facts. Provocative episode, I know you'll enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening. This episode is sponsored by Cumulus. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And I'm absolutely thrilled today to have back with me Igor Volovich from Cumulus. Igor, first of all, welcome back. Oh, thank you, sir. One of the reasons I was so excited for you to come back is... We have one, we have great conversations. Two, we have a lot of fun. But three, you're pretty provocative. And I'm not sure that's by design or not, but you put ideas out there that we all need to think about. And we're going to try to challenge some compliance professionals today to think about how they're thinking about compliance. Before we get there, I wanted to maybe start with what are your some of your current thoughts on executive accountability and why that's so critical in any form of compliance. I think this story ties into the the story you mentioned earlier, right? The idea of what's wrong with compliance. And I, I don't mean to be provocative on purpose. I think when we analyze the compliance industry and the audit industry with any degree of, right, if we actually apply critical thinking, we have to come out with these conclusions. But talking about executive accountability, I think we, we can't talk about compliance integrity and compliance certainty compliance confidence without talking about executive accountability, because guess what? Executives are the ones who are signing off on the state of compliance, on the controls, on the maturity posture of their organizations. And these decisions about security posture are being made, right? We're talking about supply chain security. We're talking about the integrated, interconnected digital world that we live in. Risk cascades and propagates. It's an ecosystem of risk and everything's connected. So when we think about how much we rely on data that's being provided by these companies, by enterprises, and then by the auditors that they hire to verify and validate what they're saying about the compliance posture. There's it's layers on layers of what basically we call opinion farming at scale. So that is, I think the problematic uh, nature of compliance writ large. And I'd love to dig into more why we think about it that way and why I think about it that way. But let's just say emperor has no clothes. Before we take that deep dive, I want to ask you about a a matter that recently came up that I know is on your radar, and that is a cyber breach at Penn State. So could you tell us a little bit about that and why you think either it's so significant or it really illustrates some of the problems that you've been talking about, Igor? 
here's the thing that that happened there. So we've got a whistleblower act action, right? So Kitam action, as the lawyers call it, and you would call it, right? Where we have what's called a relator, basically a person who makes the disclosure, uh, and it's a protected disclosure. They become a whistleblower as a result of that, and they get protection under law. And so what the whistleblower revealed is that Penn State, while taking federal money and engaging in federal research and federally funded research, specifically DOD research, uh, was actually misrepresenting their compliance posture uh, on contracts. So every year you have to certify that you are protecting uh, federal information, right? Whether it's CUI, confidential unclassified information, or if it's actually you know classified information. And you have to make those statements and you have to sign off on them. So you have to assert and accredit yourself as a secure environment because you it's not your data, right? It's the government data. And so as a condition of continuing to receive those funds and continuing to engage in that work, you have to certify that you are actually secure. Apparently, Penn State was misrepresenting those facts. And we can get into whether that was willful or whether that was negligent or whether that was willful negligence, right? It could be a combination of all of those. But so far, what we know is controls were misrepresented and the government is pretty upset about that. And now they've brought this kind of this three-party three action. And you can, as an attorney, you can, of course, talk about how that actually works. But the relator basically is the avatar. He steps in to represent the interests of the aggrieved party. And they are representing also the information that they bring out to, to the public domain. And so this is where we are now. So obviously, Penn State is in jeopardy of not receiving grants or not being able to engage in that kind of research. So obviously, impacts their bottom line. It impacts their revenue. And uh, probably endanger some research that uh, could be useful to the public. So this has repercussions, right? And now, of course, they're going to be asking a lot of questions as to who signed off on these controls. And it could be they actually are subject to a fine and penalty as well. Yeah, we're talking about not just civil, right? It, it, not, not only are they going to get their contract pulled or definitely reviewed, right? Now they're going to be under a lot of scrutiny. You're going to have basically the federal government living in your enterprise and checking things, right? The, the, the trust has been lost. And so from that perspective, that's one side of it. The other side of it, yeah, there are criminal penalties, actually, right? You have lied to the federal government about some pretty serious issues. And data has been at risk. And so what happened there was actually they had placed information that should have been in a in a secure environment into more of a public facing environment right and we're talking about microsoft m365 let's not get into de de detail jump into the weeds there but the point is they made a mistake right mistakes happen all the time but when they made the mistake they now it looks like tried to cover it up right now I, look I, i'm not casting any aspersions i'm not in the case i don't know the specifics of it to any degree beyond what we know here in the public domain but what we do know is something happened and as a result of that incident questions were asked and when the questions were asked somebody who was probably in the line of fire decided to i gotta make a disclosure i gotta actually represent what happened and and people deserve the right to know so here we are right this is and this has been happening right this is a, not a one-off case we've seen aerodyne rocket jet right that happened so I think it's Rocketdyne Aerojet. I get it wrong all the time, but it's, I think it's Aerodyne. Yeah, it's I think Aerojet, Rocketdyne. So they, same story, right? I think it was like $1.2 billion worth of contracts. And they launched the rockets, satellites got launched, everything was good, hunky-dory. And it turns out they have been, had been misrepresenting their security posture uh, on, again, government contracts. So same story, another whistleblower. This happened earlier. I think it was about two years ago. And the whistleblower actually got paid out. So there is now a new incentive model in place that's been around for a few years that is actually incentivizing whistleblowing specifically within the cybersecurity domain. And the fact that the False Claims Act is now being applied within this space, I think that's, a, that's an interesting development. I think it's, it's going to incentivize a lot more whistleblowers than we've seen before.
Let me change the focus a little bit because since our last time to visit together, you guys released, I'm going to call it a white paper entitled Rethinking Compliance. And that really, in reading that, sort of encapsulated for me what I hear from you in terms of your provocative thinking. And you laid out not only what the problem is, but equally importantly, what just some of the solutions. And many people can talk about the problems, but it's the ones that can talk about the solutions that are the most intriguing. So perhaps, and the analogy, or even maybe just the picture you put in my mind was driving along and but keeping your eyes on the rearview mirror as mm-hmm. a way that compliance is being done now. And I thought that was a very powerful metaphor. So maybe we could talk about what you guys see as the problem or problems, and I might translate it into my compliance speak, but let's just see where we can go with that because I found it really interesting, Igor. I appreciate it, Tom. So the thing is, compliance has been relegated to this historical reporting function for decades. Why we did it, who knows, right? But we've inherited the function from financial audit. And look, we look at past events, we try to predict future events. But as they say on Wall Street, past performance is no guarantee of future results. You can All you can do is try to approximate And really it's about behaviors, right? So when we see that there's malfeasance happening, when the controls are not being, not being done right, when you have control failures and they're systemic, then you can predict, you can say, look, this company is not doing their due diligence. They're being negligent and we can extrapolate from there. And that's what kind of audit model is, right? We look at a few things and we say, okay, can we make a proxy assessment about the rest of the health of the environment? It's like taking temperature across the pool. You can take it in one corner, you can take it in the other corner, but you know, right? Because it all mixes together, right? And again, we're talking about behaviors, behaviors, we're talking about organizations, uh, cultures. So you keep extrapolate. But the problem is cyber doesn't work that way, right? By taking temperature readings in one corner of the pool, what you really are doing is just taking a temperature reading in a very small subset of that environment, right? But you really are looking at a thousand different mini pools, like little beakers of water, right? And you're taking individual readings, trying to approximate or, or extrapolate. And that just doesn't work. That's just not the technical reality of what is. And so we've fooled ourselves in this idea that by writing an audit or doing an assessment, and looking at a small scope or a small subset of a subset of the environment, right? Because, and why do I say multiple layers of subsets? Because we're talking about what? Here's your entire enterprise. And then you say, well, I'm going to apply this framework or this standard or this mandate. And that, of course, has certain controls in it. And they invoke certain requirements. You can't look at everything. And you can't apply the entire mandate to the entire environment. It's just not economically feasible. And so you're basically forced to look again. Now now you're looking through one set of straws. Then you apply what we call scoping, right? You're going to only look at a subset of the environment because that's the only thing that you believe uh, is within scope of that particular mandate. So now you've got a second set of filtering. And so an audit and audit goes, right? And then you apply the audit model, which basically says, look, we're going to go on site for a month, maybe if you're lucky, maybe a couple of weeks. And we're going to look at, try to look, I don't know, 4,000 line of business applications in two weeks. Again, impossible. We're going to do a representative sample. Again, your sampling is the key here, right? And how do we make sure that the sampling is correct? We ask somebody. And who do we rely upon? We rely upon the people who work in the environment. And so you've got layers and layers and layers of subjective opinions driving this model. And, and when you step back and you uh, step back and you realize that's what's actually happening, right? We're, it's opinion farming at scale. We're not really collecting data, right? Just because it winds up in some form or in some spreadsheet and then we stack those real high. It's like that scene from The Big Short, right? When Ryan Gosling's character goes in, he's got the Jenga set and it's got all these bonds on it, right? And it's double A, triple A, double B, triple B. And you stack them up. Oh, we're just going to rate it A minus or A plus or you know, double B or something. 
it doesn't matter how high you stack these opinions. It's still opinion, right? And I actually, I have a Jenga set that I made that actually says opinion on every Jenga piece. And then when you stack them together, it actually reads opinion across the side because it's still opinions. And I think people need to realize that. So when we say rethinking compliance, that is at the crux of it, that it's all driven by opinion through and through. And by the way, the model, the validation model for it, which is audit, it's also opinion driven, right? We rely on their training, their expertise, their experience, the fact that you know, KPMG, EY, not to call specific names out, but basically the big four and everybody around them, right? The names that you, you hear on the radio when they drive down the Greenway in, in DC, that's who you're relying on. And this is not to say they're doing anything poorly. They're doing the best they can with the model they have. The model is broken. So I come out of the anti-corruption compliance world, and we say there are three functions of a compliance program, prevent, detect, and remediate. What I thought I heard you just describe in large measure was detection. But in the cyber world, if you detect a breach, now you're in trouble. One, you've had a breach. Two, you've just detected it. It may have been literally years ago, but it could be recent. You have disclosure obligations, and you have other obligations to those persons or companies that lost the data, as well as reporting to the general public. So can we move to something that is a more risk-based risk management strategy, or perhaps move from simply detection to actual prevention? That's the idea, right? So we definitely recognize that in a cyber or security operations world, right? We'd never, ever accept the idea that a security operations center, or called the SOC, would operate on data from three weeks ago, right? or three months ago, for God's sake, right? So in compliance, that's completely normal, right? As anybody who works in the federal space knows, ATOs or authorities to operate, they run on in three-year cycles, triennial cycles. And you're recertified every year, right? But you could be looking at a time horizon of three years in any program, at any given time. It's a rolling time horizon. So you're looking backwards three years. As you said, we review security model, right? It's You're looking in the mirror, trying to drive forward, and you're always looking backwards. That's how a lot of this stuff is built. Most of this stuff is built. I mean, think about this. We haven't changed how we do compliance since the days of Hammurabi. And I like saying that because people go, what? And I go, we haven't. 3,700 whatever years, right? How long that thing is dated to. That, that's the first compliance code we've ever known. Now, we've upgraded our fire codes and building codes. And it works because you do it in stages, right? Because you build a building, you, you know, certify the foundation next, and you keep building. And you've got different kinds of codes for that. And, and so there's a stage model. In cyber, things move too fast. You just, the, the, the compliance model just doesn't work. It, does, it needs to operate in real time. And so if you continue to looking backwards, sometimes as far back as three years, which is still very legal. Again, this talks about, this speaks to the fact that it's that broken, right? This whole model is just faulty, right? The idea of it is faulty. It's because you accept the fact that we can be doing risk management in the real time, or God forbid, trying to do it in the future, proactive, right? Predictive risk management and modeling with data from three years ago. Like the, the, the world has moved. Your world has moved and the world around you has definitely moved, guaranteed, right? So how do we fix that? We fix that by accepting the notion that compliance has to live in the real time, just like security does. If we talk about, you know, people are, are very fond of saying compliance is not security. We hear that all the time. I hear that all the time. Look, I'm a compliance strategist. What does that even mean? People ask me all the time, compliance strategist, is, is that a function? Yeah, it's a function that we created because we needed to speak about it in these terms, in strategic terms, right? And nobody thinks compliance is strategic. And the reason they don't is because compliance hasn't delivered anything except a bunch of paper. And I don't care if it's digitized. People talk about compliance modernization or compliance automation. What they really talk about is compliance digitization. They take paper processes, paper forms, they digitize them, 
and they stick it on some kind of a platform, right? And so now instead of filling out a paper report or some crappy old Excel spreadsheet, you're filling out a form and it looks spiffy and it goes somewhere and you don't see it. And then it pops up again in three months and you fill it out again. That becomes your quote unquote compliance experience, another term that we've coined. And so forget the experience. Let's talk about the guts of it. Let's talk about the reality of it. The reality of it, the model is broken. I don't care how much fancy UI you put in front of it. If you're looking at opinions, not data, you will always be catching up. You'll always be playing catch up. You'll always be behind the ball by maybe up to three years. So the, the real solution, the real answer is get compliance to real time. And the only way to do that is with true compliance automation that's data driven, not opinion driven. What about the siloed nature of compliance? So once again, many, myself included, and our listeners are at a corruption compliance professionals, but they're and they're money laundering compliance professionals, they're export control compliance professionals, and they're cyber compliance professionals. Do we need to have an integrated approach to all of those? And if so, how can we do that? I think there's a, that's an interesting idea, right? To me, there is no cyber risk, right? It's, it is a subset of risk, right? Business risk is business risk, right? And I think the more we continue to carve out this cyber as a separate thing or com- carve out compliance from security, right? To me, compliance is inherent in insecurity because it is a great model for consistent management of risk. If we bring it to real time, that's a risk management uh, vehicle, right? If we don't, if we keep making it this historical reporting function, that's eh, a bureauc- bureaucratic function. Nobody cares, right? We bring it into real time. We demonstrate the value of compliance. We show you that, guess what? Every piece of technology that you're investing in, and by the way, we've invested every year m- the most money we've ever invested into cyber, right? And yet we are looking at losses, the biggest losses we ever had every single year from cyber. And we are like at 10x the amount of time, the amount of resources that we spend. So we spent, we're we're on track to spend like a trillion on cybersecurity services and products. And we're on track to lose 10 trillion in the next couple of years, right? So what gives, right? Clearly something's broken. And so when we think about risk, I think about it holistically. Everybody likes to throw that word around. But what I mean is it's everything, right? AML, KYC, all the stuff that we saw with the with a debacle over in crypto world, like this keeps highlighting this, the, the, the notion that we need to know more, we need more transparency, we need more assurance around the way that we do compliance management, right? And we want data. Like we cannot wait for an audit to come around. And also, look, I'm fond of saying, maybe I've coined the phrase, I don't know. Let, let, I'll take credit for it. Right? The breach is the ultimate audit. So you can hide all you want. You can play footsie with auditors. You can do all kinds of malfeasance and negligence and willfulness, whatever you want, right? You can play all the paper shuffling games you want. In the end, the breach is the ultimate audit. The bad guys don't care about checkboxes, right? They never did, they never will. So you can do all the fancy reporting and you can put all the fancy UI in front of your old crappy spreadsheets. In the end, the breach will definitely show the real cards, right? Where do you want to be? Do you want to be operating with the same data that the bad guys do, right? The reality, the true picture of your environment? Or do you want to go, go, I can't hear you and stick your head in the sand and just pray that nothing happens? Everybody gets breached. We remember when Mueller at the FBI, I think he like 20 years ago said that. He said, everybody gets breached. And yeah, everybody does. So I think a lot of folks philosophically accepted this idea of the eventuality of the breach. How I learned to stop worrying and love the breach. The paraphrase the, the old phrase they, this idea that it's just going to happen anyway what are we going to do we're going to fire our CISO and hire a new one and then move on rinse repeat wipe hands on pans that's not a viable model and now the sec the ftc the dhs this is everybody and their grandmothers the regulatory agency are coming to town and saying look no that's not going to work you guys 
we clearly have not put enough incentives in the marketplace for you to wake up and do the right thing. So I guess we're going to go after the executives. And that's where we go back to this idea of executive accountability. And I know this is a very long segue to that original point you made, but that's, but this is the idea, right? The market has not acted to create those incentives through economic means, right? So the government is saying, look, I guess we're going to do it through regulatory means and we're going to enforce. And so when you got the likes of the SEC and the FTC saying, we're going to be the cyber enforcement arm of the marketplace, they're taking this position that, well, the market is not smart enough to do it, to price this in. So we will, we'll do it for you. And we'll do it through criminal and civil penalties. How would you counsel a board of directors on two things? One, their role in oversight, but even beyond their role, how would they begin to question a chief compliance officer, a CISO, a chief executive officer, a chief strategy officer on this much more forward-looking, data-driven, fact-based approach? I would start by saying, what is our governance model? And I think a lot of people go, governance model. When I'm talking about governance model, I'm talking about the risk governance. And within that, and I think if you think about risk the way I think about risk, in that kind of a holistic, all-encompassing manner, where risk is a business function, not just this department, not cyber risk over there, and then you've got compliance risk over here, and you've got KYC, AML risk over there, et cetera, et cetera. Contract risk, third-party risk, and, and it's all different departments, and they, all, they, they go up different channels, right? Somebody needs to have a complete picture of risk for the entire business. And I don't care how big your business is, small, large, very large, multinational. I've worked in all of them and I've advised in a lot of them. And it seems to be the common theme is that risk governance is the less, the, the least clear thing there is. And you've got audit committees at the board level. But again, audit in the current model typically is looking backwards. So again, how do we get to real time? So I think demanding I may be asking some of these what sound like basically philosophical questions, like how do we know what we know about our state of compliance? How do we know what we know about our state of risk? How do we know what we know about our compliance maturity, our posture as an organization from a risk perspective? And I don't mean show me your last vulnerability scan. And if I see another CISO who pulls that up at a board presentation, I, I, I'm going to have, I'm probably going to stroke out. It, it's just, we have so disparaged ourselves as professionals in the security space by doing that, by diving into the weeds, by basically being glorified technology managers in the key of cyber. No, be a business leader, be a strategist, be a strategic thinker. Think about the business context. I really don't want to hear about some IP address that you scanned and it's got severity one vulnerability, right? I don't want to hear about CVSS scores or EPSS scores or whatever else, right? I need to understand where we are and I'm going to question how do we know what we know, right? So I think Without getting to the weeds, look, the SEC has put out this guidance that says we want security professionals on the board of directors. And actually, I think I wrote about that at some point on LinkedIn. I think I posted a, an article about it where there's two options, actually really three, right? One, you take the people who are already on boards and you train them to be cyber specialists, right? Experts. And you do it in a very rapid fashion. That's not a likely option, right? The other one is you elevate CISOs to true C-level status, right? Stop making the C and CISO silent, is the way I like to put it. And I, I think I had a piece of content about that. The C is silent, right? Again, CISOs, not really CISOs, right? The C is really a courtesy title at best, right? So a brevet promotion, maybe. And then after the breach is over, okay, we remember who you really are, right? You're, go manage your, go play with your toys, right? Go right in the corner. And very few CISOs are truly CISOs. Can you elevate CISOs to that level? You probably could, but again, I think there's a kind of a dim view because we haven't, as CISOs, we haven't provided enough of that business value. 
right? We haven't communicated. We haven't really thought about it. We're too busy dealing with the reactive, right? There's a latest breach. There's a latest incident. There's a latest uh, attack trend that we got to chase and put resources towards. I got to manage my incident response effort because somebody's always breaching and somebody's always responding. That's option two, right? Elevate. And then option three is basically rethink how you think about risk. And so again, we go back to this idea of risk governance. And so if you understand that risk needs to be governed at the board level, that it needs to be understood at the board level, and everything you're being told, question that, that's where I would start, right? So if somebody brings you a report and says, our compliance posture is X or our risk posture is Y. And by the way, if those are two different reports, I would start questioning. I would start my questioning there. I would start asking, how come when you talk about compliance, you take a full pause and then you talk about risk? And then you take a full pause and then you talk about security. I'd like to note that. And then we lean into something that I call convergence, right? And so the idea of convergence is something that is actually, finally, I think the market is catching up. I think we were too early with this concept. I think when we came out with convergence, people looked at us like, ah, just another fancy word. You guys are trying to look different. We're not. This is, I'm not being provocative for the sake of provocation, right? I'm trying to get people off the X. I'm trying to get people to come off this malaise, this status quo notion that we can just keep plugging plugging along just the way we have been. We can't, right? The world is too connected. Everything's online. Everything's always on. Uh, you've got IoT. You've got industrial IoT. You've got vendors throwing stuff into the world, 10 million units a, a month, right? All of it is connected. All of it's got functionality. All of it can be weaponized. We saw the Mirai bot not a few years back. 300,000, what were they, video controllers for surveillance uh, IP cameras, and they all had the same chipset. And they all were similarly vulnerable. And so somebody was able to take over 300,000 systems at once. One, boom. And then they had full control of the internet. They were taking down Amazon East with the botnet, right? This is what we're looking at. And it's just only going to get worse. So if we don't really put a handle on this at the corporate level, and by the way, look, in the United States, let's talk about national infrastructure. Critical national infrastructure is 85% or more in private industry hands. So there's only so much the federal government can do pushing mandates and pushing regulatory uh, requirements and doing enforcement. And even they're, even if they're ratcheting up enforcement and scrutiny of the executives, which they should, right? The accountability should matter. And the incentive models should definitely be built in to drive better behaviors at the top. But there's just not enough. It's just not enough. The, the federal government can't put their arms around all of it. So, so we have to drive these behaviors across all different channels. And I think the first step is to answer your question is, yeah, you start rethinking how you think about risk. You start asking, how do we know what we know about where we stand? I'd like to conclude by uh, talking about the impact of geopolitical risk on cyber and compliance. So in 2022, we had a Russian invasion of Ukraine with attendant business risk and business consequences, starting with the federal government but in a wide variety of other areas. Earlier this year, uh, late last year and earlier this year, there seemed to be an awakening, at least in the United States, of a potential coming conflict with China, certainly a very robust competition that could lead to a conflict. And then within the past two weeks or 30 days, we've had the Middle East come up. And how would you advocate or how would you counsel, perhaps, is the better question, a company to respond to these geopolitical risks from a business perspective and your last remarks about U.S. infrastructure with 85% being privately held seems to me to be a perfect example of why this is so critical. But how do you help them understand geopolitical risk of China, Russia, and the Middle East are going to impact your business in West Texas? 
Sure. So I think that's a perfect question. Of course, the times are, are really tough out there and my heart goes out to everybody who's affected by the the most recent unpleasantness out in the Middle East. And, and I have friends over there and I and, and my heart goes out to them. And in fact, I, I know people in the industry whose operations have been impacted, whose lives have been impacted by it, and some lives have been lost. And so this is something that I think about very heavily. And, and this is not just a geopolitical thing. This comes home, right? This definitely hits home when you actually know somebody who's, who's suffered under these atrocious attacks. But when we're talking about the, again, systemic risk, right? We're talking about geopolitical factor in your business risk and how do you acknowledge it, right? Look, I, as long as I've been in this business, and I think you'll probably agree with this, you look at the risk register, if geopolitical risk is not on there, you're not doing your job, right? So you have to acknowledge these things. You have to look at the trends, you have to look at the what's happening out there, and you have to acknowledge some of our operations are subject to these potential headwinds. And so you have to think about that. But how do we defend our nation, how do we defend the United States and especially critical national infrastructure? And I haven't been in a think tank in D.C. where we talked about these things. I actually went out on the Hill and briefed uh, senators and congressmen on their committees and, and talked about the idea that we got to do better. And the better, really, for me, from my perspective, is better uh, private-public partnership, right, where it becomes truly a partnership. The focus, the, the, the last P should be the least silent. And Historically, in my view, it has been the the most silent, right? The PPP, the private-public partnership. The partnership part has not always been a true partnership of equals, right? It's always, in my view, and certainly in my history, has been a lot of stuff. You provide a lot of information. You participate in these kind of information collection operations, and very little comes back. So you might get an indicator of compromise. You might get a very specific piece of intelligence when you're briefed in or cleared into a particular program uh, within your industry domain. There's, of course, 16 domains of critical national infrastructure that are being recognized. And so you happen to be in the water supply, right? You might get a piece of intel about that, and it might be specific to an attack or or something that was heard on some wire. Somebody's got to poison the water supply in, in Pennsylvania, for instance, right? Totally hypothetical. And so you respond to that. But there is not this continuous model of engagement where it's truly bidirectional, where it's truly an information truly flows both ways. We're not waiting to get tagged into an existing incident or something that's just spinning up. And, and as soon as that's over, you're back out on your own, kind of left to your own devices. So I, I think the federal government has done a, a better job of engaging. I think they've done a better job of providing information and guidance and, and putting out more kind of forward-looking statements around the trends and the, and the threats that I see out there. And folks are briefed into programs like InfraGuard, of course, they get to see the stuff on an ongoing basis. Uh, but I think, again, more kind of a hand-in-hand, truly a partnership of equals. I think that's the thing I'd love to see in the critical infrastructure space. And I think I echo a lot of the statements and opinions that are out there in the space. So better partnership, better engagement, and being more proactive, right? And I think it also starts with the fact that you need to know where we are. And because, and kind of to bring it back to the idea that we started with, is if you don't know how, then how do you know that you know it, right? <laughs> and it's starting to sound like a riddle, and I hate to sound the riddler, but that's it. If you can't be certain about the things that you believe about the state of your world, if you don't know where your controls are at any given time, it's like the old commercial back in the 80s, 10 p.m., do you know where your kids are? It's 24-7, 365, do you know where your controls are? And if you don't, and you can't with every level of certainty to say down to a single control, single IP address, single system, single application, single person and their behavioral model, right? If you cannot assure any of that, then how do you make these sort of these proxy statements, these extrapolation models where you take a temperature on one corner of the pool and you claim that you know what's happening everywhere else? These things don't mix together. And especially when it goes from industry to industry, there are these verticalized, silent models of security, a lot of legacy, a lot of stuff that goes back 20, 30, 40 years of how we think about our world, how we think about 
the interior of our world, right? It's just a lot of these beliefs are so outdated. They're hopelessly outdated, but yet still we, we apply these legacy models to this world that's moved way beyond them. So it's time to catch up. It's time to get on the same time scale. And I think that's the big thing when we think about why security and compliance are divorced and risk is sitting there by its own. We need to converge, right? And the convergence is the time scale, right? Bring compliance to real time, bring security and risk on the same time scale with it. And then you can actually attain this idea of proactive risk management. But it's a tough slog. And I know a lot of people are very skeptical about it. But look at data, look at subject, look at objective. Don't look at opinions, look at facts, right? We got to move risk from a fiction section of the library over to the documentary section, right? Biography section. And we need to write that biography in real time. I think that's a great way for us to end. But before we leave, if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, on Cumulus, the topics we've touched on, what would be the best place or places for them to go? So happy to connect with anybody on LinkedIn. Please engage I-G-O-R-V-O-L-O-V-I-C-H. And on uh, the web, it's Cumulus, Q-M-U-L-O-S. Again, it's Q-M-U-L-O-S.com. Find us on the web. We've got all these materials out there and we publish all the time. I do my podcast and it's called Compliance Therapy. In fact, we've recognized the idea that this needs a level of therapy. People need to understand that. Reframe their mind. And sometimes we start talking like we're therapists. That's why I'm dressed as a doctor and that's why we do this kind of work. So again, Tom, thank you for having me on. It's been another great conversation. I I appreciate the time and, and the opportunity to share my opinions. Thanks so much. I look forward to the next time the doctor is in. I appreciate it, sir. Thank you very much. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Innovation and Compliance. I've linked to David's profile on LinkedIn as well as the IntelliKey Academy. Uh, You should check it out. It's got some great resources. And if you're looking for a way to assess your own potential and help grow professionally or you'd like to have some of your employees uh, be involved in that process, it will be a great resource for you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. Innovation and Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.